Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Yesterday here at GCA, we had a memorial service for Conrad Carnes, and for the first time in the 20 years of our existence, we had a Church of Christ, Free Willist pastor, standing here at the pulpit at GCA. And in his short remarks, he put his finger right on the difference between what he believes and what we believe. The difference, according to him, was that he said, you all believe in the sovereignty of God, and I believe a man has free will. And that is the distinction. That is the primary distinction between what we know as Arminianism and what is classically nicknamed Calvinism. Now, I should say right up front, I have never, not once ever, not here at this pulpit, not on our YouTube channel, not on my blog site, not on our website, nowhere, never, not once ever have I taught John Calvin. 
Not once. It just hasn't happened. What I do is I teach the Bible. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a Bible guy. That's all I got for you. All I do is teach the Bible. It turns out that John Calvin's theology, his soteriology, his description of how people get saved, matches most closely what the Bible says about how people get saved. So almost by default, we become Calvinistic in our soteriology. I don't really like that nickname. I prefer the nickname that Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to use. He used to call this the theology of sovereign grace. And so we are a sovereign grace assembly. So let's talk about that difference for a few moments between the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation versus man's free will in salvation because this conversation rather providentially plays right into what we are studying right now in the first couple chapters of the book of Ephesians. As we continue to go through these first couple of chapters, I want you to pay close attention to who the actor is because what you will see over and over again is Paul keeps saying God does stuff. God is the deciding factor. God is the first and only cause in salvation. And he keeps saying, God did. God did. God did these things. The only place where you are mentioned is at the beginning of chapter 2 when you're going to read that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then Paul says, but God sent his son to die for us. The theology of Paul is always man is depraved and sinful. Not man has the free will, the free choice, the free option. Once you see that in the New Testament, the language of salvation is always God-centric. It is always Christocentric. It always says God did everything, Christ did everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and eternal redemption. Once you see that, the challenge is to find anything in the Bible that is also talking about salvation, where you find that you are the actor, you are the chooser. You are the decider. You are the first cause. You begin the relationship. You do something. You can search the Bible from front to back. You won't find that anywhere. So the theology of man's free will in salvation is glaringly absent from the Bible. The doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation is repeated over and over and over again, and in every passage of the Bible that is discussing the topic of salvation and how human beings are saved eternally, always, without fail, constantly, every single time, God gets all the credit. The difference between the theology that we believe and promote here, the theology of God's absolute sovereignty, and the theology of man's free will and salvation, the big difference is we give God all the credit, all the glory, 
all the honor because he did it all. The theology of free will says, yeah, but me. Yeah, but I. I am the deciding factor. So if a person with that mindset ends up standing before God, can't he insist that he gets some of the credit? Because after all, he did the thing that other people just weren't willing to do. You know, if Jesus died for everybody and salvation is universally available to everybody, then those people who do get saved are the people who figured out that they needed to do what other people just weren't willing to do. So then they get some credit because they were either smarter or more devoted. They figured it out. And so they did the thing that caused God to save them. They become the first cause. God becomes the re-actor, not the actor. So the entire theological debate between God's sovereignty and salvation versus man's free will and salvation comes down to a couple of very important things. Number one, who is the actor? Is God the actor? Or is the human being the actor, which makes God the re-actor? Secondly, who gets the glory? Does God get all the glory, all the praise, all the honor in the saving work that he does on behalf of fallen, sinful people? Tom just read it for us. I don't know if you heard it. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, God-haters, God sent his son to die for us. If you look at Romans 3, the description that we read just last week, that there's no one who does good. There's no one righteous. No, not one. There's no one who ever stirred himself up to seek God. If you know that about human beings, it's very hard to believe that some human beings, despite that biblical description, did stir themselves up. And did do something really good and really righteous and choose God. And then God was obligated to respond to them. So who is the actor? Who gets the glory? And thirdly, and I think most importantly, what does the text say? The Bible says in every single instance where you're talking about the salvation of human beings, the Bible says every single time that God does it all. And you won't find one single text anywhere in the Bible where the subject of salvation is being discussed, where it says God saves people who get busy, clean themselves up, do better, make a decision, choose Jesus, make him Lord and Savior. None of the classic free will theology is found in a single passage of the Bible. Elizabeth this morning, I'm going to talk about you for a moment now. I know people are reticent to speak to me sometimes because they're afraid that I'll bring it up later from the pulpit. That's why I'm talking to you. I know that. And yet I talk about you from the pulpit anyway. So, no, but Elizabeth said, uh, she was attempting to compliment me, and she said, you, you stayed very calm yesterday when the preacher was saying things that 
that just weren't biblical, weren't accurate. And I said, the reason I was able to stay calm is not only because I know we have the Bible on our side, but I was confident that everybody from GCA that heard him would go, yeah, that ain't right. (laughs) (laughs) So I knew he wasn't really doing any damage. Do you see the difference? Do you understand the difference? The Bible's very clear. The world thinks a whole lot of things. The world promotes a whole lot of things. And if you listen to what everybody has to say on a topic, you're going to get a whole lot of opinion. And everybody has opinions. And opinions can't save you. And so at some point, you have to have something solid, something with substance, something rigorous, something you can stand on and say, okay, this is the truth, and I can trust this truth, I can rest on this truth, I know this is the truth. The standard of truth in Christianity is the Bible. And so if the Bible says something, that is the truth. And if the Bible tells you how people get saved, then you have to align your thinking about salvation with what the Bible actually says. And it actually says God did it, and it actually doesn't say Men do it. And that's just a fact. So here at GCA, we just keep stumping for the word. Turn to Ephesians 1. This morning we're going to talk a lot about apolutrosis. That is a Greek word that is translated as redemption. Now, we're familiar with the English word redemption, and I am going to throw a few Greek words at you this morning just so that we can tear them apart and talk about what they mean, because in word-for-word formal equivalency translations like the NASB, sometimes complex Greek words are reduced to a single English word that can't really catch and embrace the entire nuance of the Greek word. So it helps every once in a while to understand what the Greek word that Paul chose really means. The English word redemption is best demonstrated by redemption centers. We grew up, at least I did, my mother used to collect S&H green stamps. And then you could take those books of green stamps to the redemption center. And that was the name of the place, the Redemption Center, where you would redeem your stamps in order to get yourself something, a lamp, a toaster, whatever they had that you wanted. You would collect your green stamps and then go to the Redemption Center. That basic idea of having a price in your hand, going to the place where the thing you want exists, and then buying it with that price that you have in your hand, redeeming it from the store and then taking it home because it's yours, is the essence of this word apolutrosis. The Greek prefix apo means out or away from. And the lutrosis part actually means to release something or to free someone Because, specifically, there was a ransom paid for that thing. 
In other words, there was a sufficient payment made. And once that sufficient payment was made, then the person who did the redeeming, the person who did the ransom paying, could then claim that thing that he had ransomed and take them out. That's the apple part. It's not just payment of ransom, but it's freedom because of payment of ransom. So you are taken out of this sin-soaked world. You are taken out of your natural proclivities toward sinfulness. You are taken out from the destruction that you deserve. You're taken out from the wrath of God. And you're taken out because somebody paid the price to buy you. And of course, that's everything we know and believe about Christianity. So this word redemption is a really good, really important word to understand when you're discussing how it is that people get saved. People get saved because Jesus himself poured out his blood as a ransom and then paid that ransom so that our sin debt was paid for and as a consequence, we are released from that sin debt and taken out of it. Mark 10.45 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why would Mark use that specific language? Because he understood that essential bit of theology that Christ, when he died, when he poured out his blood, he was actually making a payment, not only paying the ransom, and you know what a ransom is. If anybody here has ever gotten a ransom letter, I hope you've never gotten a ransom letter. But if you've ever seen a movie where someone has written a a ransom letter, you know what that means. We've taken your loved one, and we're not going to give them back until you pay the ransom, and then we will free them. Okay, well, that's the same thing Jesus did. He paid the ransom price, but the ransom price that he paid was himself. So he became our ransom and then gave his life as a ransom, and having paid the ransom price, we are then set free so that he can redeem us and take us out of our previous state of being under the wrath of God. Okay, so that takes us to the next thing we have to understand. Who was the ransom paid to? A lot of people get this wrong. They will say that Jesus, when he died, went to hell for three days to pay a price to Satan, as if Jesus owed Satan something. Or as if your biggest worry is that Satan is going to condemn you when you die. That's not who the ransom was paid to. And that's not who your biggest concern is. Your biggest concern is you are under the wrath of God. And the payment price was paid to God because the person you sinned against was God. Tom just read Romans 5 for us. And one of the phrases that he used was now that we're confident that we have been redeemed, we are free from wrath. We are removed from the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the price 
to redeem us from the wrath of God was the price that Jesus himself paid because God's wrath, God's judgment, God's eternal decree of depart from me and stay away from me eternally, that's your biggest worry. That's your biggest concern. The wrath and the anger of God is why a payment of ransom was made, to ransom you off that slave market of sin and the just wrath of God that was coming your way. You are by nature, says Paul, children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. wrath. It's not Satan's wrath that's going to come get you. Remember when you're talking about Satan that he only exists because God allows him to exist. I can prove that by Revelation 20 when he's put into the abyss and they seal him up and he can't deceive the nations for a thousand years. Then he's released, Gog and Magog, all that, and then God wipes him out completely, throws him into the lake of fire made for the devil and his angels. That means that God can destroy Satan at any point that he wants to. He hasn't yet. Why? Because Satan still serves some purpose in the grand scheme and economy of God. And when God is done with him, he's going to mop up the floor with him. When God is done with him, he's going to throw him into the lake of fire where there is massive weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so that means, once again, who's in charge? If you're looking at God and Satan, is it really a warfare between equals? No. Why? Because God is sovereign. And what was the charge we heard yesterday? Well, you all think that God is sovereign. Yes, because, and you can quote me on this, because he is. Because he is actually sovereign, sovereign over Satan, sovereign over all people, sovereign over his creation. He is the sovereign one. He is also sovereign over salvation. And so, in order to deliver certain chosen elect people who were written down before the foundation of the world, in order to save those people from the wrath of God, his son poured out his life as a ransom price to buy us out of our sin debt that would result in eternal wrath from God. And by paying that price, it was a fully sufficient price that would allow him to redeem us, to take us to himself. The same way that you would go get a toaster or a lamp, he came to the earth, paid the sufficient price, which was himself, to buy you, and that's why you belong to him. You're in Christ, Christ is in you, as a result of his redemptive work. You get some sense now of what redemption is? Let's start reading. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So far, who's the actor? God. 
The only part we play in this sentence is that we are acted upon. We are the blessed people who God has blessed. Speak well of God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, because they blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And if you think you're the one who did that, then explain to us, please, how it is that you managed to grab for yourself every spiritual blessing, even the stuff you don't know about and don't understand, and how it is that you were able to accumulate to yourself those things that exist in the heavenly places. You can't do that because you're weak and incapable and fully dependent on the sovereign one. The comparison biblically is always, he's sovereign, your flesh, you're weak. You're incapable. You're dead. That's why it's so remarkable that Paul would extol this theology of grace. Because it's all grace. It's continually grace. It's constantly grace because you're you. And yet, God, our blessed Father, blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. How do we become holy and blameless before him? Because of the redemptive work of Christ. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He predestined us in son placement and he did all that according to the kind intention of his own will. He predestined us. He foreordained us. He chose us before the foundation of the world and he did all that through Jesus Christ to Himself. Who's the actor? God. It's kind of hard to shoehorn you into there somewhere, isn't it? You, you don't fit anywhere in there. Okay, now i got to ask the question. Is this text about salvation? Is that the context? Yeah, it's okay. It's not a trick question. Yeah, it is. And in the context of salvation, who's the actor? God. God and God alone, God only. So is that what the Bible says about how people get saved? Yes. Yep. Yeah. That's kind of the end of the argument. That is what the Bible says about how people get saved. And that's why I love the grace of God. Because once you understand that it wasn't you, but all God, and that when he saw you, he saw you as a fallen, depraved, God-hating sinner, and nevertheless sent his son to be a ransom for you, to redeem you from yourself and from his own wrath, you can't think of any one thing you ever did, ever thought, or ever were that would make you deserve that from God. And yet he did it for you. Why? Paul says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. 
That's why he did it. To the praise of the glory of his grace. So, when you're getting your theology right, if your theology gives all the credit to God, would that be to the praise of the glory of his grace? Okay, let me ask the question the other way. If, despite what the Bible says, you do insert yourself in there and your will and your decision, and you make much of human beings in the process of salvation, is that completely to the praise of the glory of his grace? No. No. You're saying that some people earned it. Some people did the thing, made the choice, made the decision, and as a consequence, God reacted to them, therefore they earned salvation. That's not to the praise of the glory of God's grace. And yet Paul's theology, which is all completely God-centered, is to the praise of the glory of God's grace because God does it all, every single bit of it. He predestined us to adoption as sons. That's the only reason you're in the family of God was because he adopted you and he determined ahead of time to adopt you. And he did all of that through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in Christ, through Christ, Christ gets all the glory for this work, and in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. How were we redeemed? Through the blood of Christ, because he made himself the ransom. He gave himself as full payment to satisfy the righteousness and holiness of God on our behalf so that Paul could write, we are not appointed to wrath. Why are we not appointed to the wrath of God? Because the ransom price for our sin was already paid, but you didn't pay it. You're not responsible for it. You didn't do it. Christ was the ransom price that was paid. He, through him, we have redemption through his blood. Now he tells us what that redemption looks like. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul just keeps saying it's grace, it's grace. It's all grace. It's continually grace. And God did all of this to the praise of the glory of the riches of his grace. This is God demonstrating himself. This is God showing who he is and what he is like. God can say words like love and mean it in a way that we can't begin to embrace or really comprehend. Our love, all our love, all our human love is conditional. I love you, but if you ever don't love me back, I don't know if I'm going to love you anymore. That's the way we all think. And yet God's love was to love sinners who were enemies. And he demonstrated that love by being gracious to you. And so I would argue to whatever degree 
you insert yourself into that process and say that the grace of God is a response to you because you made the choice, you made the decision, you did the thing, to whatever degree you insert yourself into that process, to that degree you are lessening the praise of the glory of God's grace. Because you're saying, I need some of that glory. I get some of that credit. I did some of that stuff. But only if you understand, no, you didn't. You didn't do any of that. It's not up to you. All you did was sin and sin badly. All you did was die in your trespasses and sins. All you did was stand there, depraved little worm that you are. And it was all completely, utterly the grace of God that saved you, that redeemed you, that drew you, that taught you, that gave you the understanding that you have at this very moment of what God did for you. It's all God. It's completely God. Beginning, middle, end. It's all God through his grace that is doing all these things for you. If you understand that, you can actually get on your face in front of that God and worship him and thank him for his kindness and grace and be astounded that he would do that for you. You can actually sing amazing grace and think grace is amazing. Because you, you, you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about you, you, and God, I'm talking about God. Talking about the God who made everything, who is righteous and holy, who encases himself in a light that no man approaches, that God. And the two of you were at enmity with each other. And you were, by nature, a child of wrath. And he decided to be good to you? And then Paul tells you that the reason he was good to you, according to the good intention of his will, the reason he willed to be good and be kind to you was because he ever loved you and wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Everything I'm saying right now is strictly biblical. That is the explanation of how and why human beings get saved. And if you attempt to impose yourself on that, You lessen God. And let me tell you something. Number one, you're not big enough to lessen God. And number two, who are you to think you can stand in front of that God and say, yeah, but me. Dig me. Look at me. Look at what I did. You gnat. You worm. You depraved sinner. Glorious God was good to you for one reason, for the praise of the glory of his grace. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Are you a sinner? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so who would you sin against? God. God. Yeah. Your sin is not ultimately against somebody else, another human being, because the other human being is also a fallen, depraved person. You may do wrong to other people. You may do things that are against the instruction of God to other people. But even as you hurt or harm somebody else, the sin of it is against God. So it would take God... To forgive you for doing that. You can't forgive you. 
and the Bible says you can't do enough good stuff to forgive you. You can't make it right because you have sinned against an eternally righteous, holy judge. So instead, that eternally righteous, holy judge has to be the actor. He has to be the one who does the forgiving. He has to be the one who designs and pays the ransom price because you can't. So if there is any peace between you and God, it has to be because God created peace between you and God. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, through that ransom price, the forgiveness of our trespasses against a righteous, eternal, holy God. According to the riches of his grace, which he gave us in little tiny doses. Keep me on the word here. It says, which he lavished on us. Lavished. I don't know that I can say this Greek word because it has a diphthong at the end of it, a series of vowels that always trip my tongue up. Parasuo. I think that's right. Jeff, what do you say? You were always good with Greek diphthongs. You used to correct my Greek diphthongs. That's a sentence I don't believe I've ever said in my life. You used to correct my Greek diphthongs. Parasuo. Okay, the whole point of that word is that it means superabundance. It means to be superfluous, so much that you can't contain it, you can't handle it. It's not only to have, but to have, and to have, and to have more, and then to have more, and then to have more than you need, and then he gives you more. That's the word that Paul chose to use here. And he says that's the way that God lavishes his grace upon us. He doesn't give us little bits of grace. He gives us an overflowing superabundance of his grace. Why? Because you are overflowing and superabundant in your sinfulness. You are constant and continual in your natural rebellion. And so if God ever cut off that constant flow of grace to you, well, then your own sinfulness and depravity would demand judgment. So God keeps pouring out this continual grace to you, a grace that began before he made anything when he wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, before creation, what a remarkably gracious thing of God to do to write the name Micah Gingrich in his book. You weren't even here yet. And he had already chosen you. He had already decided what he was going to do. And just to guarantee that Micah was going to make it to eternity, before he did anything, God wrote his name down. And spelled it right. Exactly. And on top of that, he's going to give you a new name. It's a super overflowing abundance of grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How remarkably overflowing, super abundant, gracious is that? While you were still an enemy of God, 
God nevertheless killed his son on your behalf and made his son a ransom to pay the price that you owed. How remarkably gracious was that? You woke up this morning and you knew your own name. How gracious of God was that? Because there were some people who woke up this morning who don't know who they are anymore. There are people who woke up today and have no idea what they're going to eat today. And every one of us have had something to eat today. How gracious of God is that? If you look at it, everything in your life, including the very fact that you're sitting here right now listening to the word of God, is an act of grace by God. Because you know you. There was some point in your life where you not only didn't want to go to church, you couldn't understand the word of God. You couldn't comprehend what was going on in this book because that's your natural, sinful, depraved state. You can't understand the things of God. And now you do. And you got up yet again. And you made the drive yet again. And you're sitting here now listening to the word of God being expounded to you. And you get it, and you understand it, and your heart is full as you understand the grace of God and the kindness of God and the kind intention of his will toward you, and and your heart just leaps for joy. Why? Because that's the grace of God to you. You get it? Mm -hmm. Everything that you have, everything that you are, anything this side of absolute, complete, utter judgment is grace from God. Superabundant, overflowing Grace from God, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, you know the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. Wisdom was very highly cherished, very highly prized in the Middle East. Even Paul wrote that the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews require a sign. You look at the Old Testament, you'll find literature that is referred to as wisdom literature. Wisdom means not only to comprehend things, not only to know stuff, but to really understand it, to really get it. I mean, I know when I look at a bridge, I've driven across the Golden Gate Bridge, remarkable piece of engineering. And when I look at it, I can see the steel, and I can see the bolts, and I can see the lines and the wires, and I can see the bridge structure, and so I can say, okay, I know that. That's a bridge, and I know the components of the bridge, but I don't understand it. I can't go out and make me one. So it's the difference between having a basic knowledge of something, a basic comprehension of something, and really understanding it. God, then, is the source and the center of all wisdom because he not only knows everything, he understands everything. One of the remarkable parts of prophecy in the Bible is that not only does God say what's going to happen in the future, but he usually also tells us why it's going to happen. He usually gives us insight into the why behind it. So it's the difference between just knowing stuff and really deeply understanding and comprehending stuff. And only God truly deeply comprehends absolutely everything. 
But then Paul adds another word to that, phronesis. The definition is a mental action or activity, an intellectual or moral insight. Sometimes it's referred to as prudence. It's a type of wisdom or intelligent that is relevant to practical action. It implies both good judgment and excellence of character and the habits that result in superior action. So Paul sticks those two things together and says, first there's the wisdom that is a full comprehension and understanding of all things. And then he brings phronesis, insight into it, and says God has an insight into everything that is the cause, the direction, the inspiration for his morally superior activity. See, that's a a better phrase than just wisdom and insight. God does the things that he does because he comprehends everything. And because of his comprehension and because of his decrees and because of his already declaring the end from the beginning, he works things out in time according to not only the kind intention of his will, but his complete comprehension of all things that drive those actions. And so Paul could say, verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. So it starts with God's complete comprehension of everything And then because of his complete comprehension of everything, he can then show us, teach us, reveal to us what it is he's doing. And we begin to understand it and comprehend it because he, as the first cause, taught it to us, showed it to us, demonstrated it to us. He's not only doing that through the course of human history, and he's not only doing that through the creation, but he's also doing it through his word. And so he is revealing himself to his people according to his complete comprehension of absolutely everything. So if he is the one who comprehends and has full insight and understanding of absolutely everything and his actions are based on his full comprehension of everything, then he is the best teacher in order to understand anything. You got it? Yes, sir. Okay, so Paul says, in all wisdom and insight, he made known, he made known to us. He made known to us. Did we figure it out? No, No. he had to make this known to us because you're never going to know anything about God unless he tells you. You're never going to understand God unless he shows it, unless he reveals it to you. So he made known to us the mystery, the, the previously unrevealed truth of his will, his desire, his kind intention. He does everything according to his will. And the reason that we have some comprehension of his will is because he showed us, revealed to us the mystery of his will according to, there's that word again, the kind intention, the good plan of God, which he purposed 
in himself. So far, who's the actor? God. Are you tired of these questions yet? I just want to make sure that this is tattooed to your brain. Okay, so far, he's the actor and he is the sole actor. You are the one who is acted upon and even what little you know of God is because he revealed it to you because he has comprehension of everything so he knows exactly how much of himself he needs to reveal to you to produce faith in you, faith in his son, which faith is going to be exchanged for righteousness in that great heavenly exchange, those great heavenly gifts which he has purposed to give you because of the glory of his own grace. So far, it's him! And it ain't you. You didn't do it. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in himself with a view. By the way, that entire phrase, I do believe, with a view is just one little Greek N. The translators because that word means toward or in, provided the entire phrase with a view toward, so that we can understand the intention of Paul in the way that he's designing the flow of information in this verse. The flow is from God toward us for a purpose. Here's the purpose. With a view to an administration, some of your translations, if you've got a King James on you, that will say dispensation. Oikonomia is the Greek word. And it means when you had a house, if you were a wealthy person and you had an entire household, you didn't deal with the day-to-day stuff of the household. You weren't out making sure there was sufficient food for everybody. You weren't dealing with the day-to-day banking. You weren't paying people. You had somebody in your house who was the administrator of your house. That's oikonomia, the person who is the administrator. Or he accomplishes the administration, given the tense of the word. So you hear me sometimes use the word for God, I'll say, in the economy of God. And that's what I mean, that God has an economy. God has a dispensation. God has an administration. God is in charge of how he doles out what he doles out and who gets what he doles out and how much they get of what he doles out and how much they know and when they know it and when he's going to bring them to faith and when he's going to reveal himself. That's all up to him. And in his divine administration of all things, in an administration suitable for this purpose, that in the fullness of times, that is, in the summing up of all things, they're summed up in Christ. Things in the heaven and things upon the earth. God's ultimate intention is that his son get all the glory. And then we read that the Son is going to return the glory back to the Father. They are in the enterprise of glorifying themselves. You've heard me say that for years and years and years. But here it is in the Bible that the whole purpose of God's grace, the whole point is that he is administering his universe and his creation 
in a suitable way so that when it sums up at the fullness of time, the end result of it is that everything is summed up in Christ. That Christ gets all the glory because Christ is the Son of God who made himself a ransom to redeem people who will for all of eternity be in his presence for the purpose of glorifying him. That's why you exist. Okay, so now let's read that whole sentence. I think I've, I've picked apart all the bits and pieces. I'm going to start at verse 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good intention of his own will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him the beloved we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him you also after listening to the message of truth the gospel of your salvation having believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a down payment as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory next week we will pick apart those last couple of verses but I wanted to read that whole thing because it begins with redemption it defines redemption that whole section ends with a view toward the redemption of God's own possession the reason you were redeemed and the reason you stand redeemed today is because God wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life and you belong to him you're his you're his own possession he can do whatever he wants with what's his Jesus said that when he was on the planet and what he chose to do for you as remarkable and astounding and amazing as it is is to not make you pay for your transgressions against him but rather that Christ would be the full payment Christ would willingly give himself as a ransom payment 
satisfying the judgment and righteousness of God so that you go free. You are redeemed. You don't fall under the judgment and wrath of God because of what Christ did. You are redeemed from your trespasses and you didn't do it. And you were chosen before the foundation of the world and you didn't do it. And you're going to end up standing before God in glory and you didn't do it. And the reason he did all that for you is because you are his possession. You got all that? Yep, sir. That, to put a very fine point on it, Paul calls the good news of your salvation. So the topic is salvation. That whole section is about salvation. Paul says so. And he calls it the gospel of your salvation. And then he says, having believed the gospel of your salvation, once you've heard it, you believed it, you embraced it, that is the gospel of your salvation. And you didn't do it. God did it all. That is a God I could worship. That's a God who didn't need me and loved me Anyway, that's a God I can thank eternally and never get tired of it. I don't know about you, but I love that God. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.